Amen, amen, amen. We serve a good and awesome God, don't we? Is he worthy to be praised? Worthy to be exalted? Worthy to be, as the song says, magnified? Amen. As always, it's a pleasure and a joy to be gathered with the saints um, this morning. Something, something, there's just some, something unique about the gathering of the saints that you only get to experience in the gathering of the saints. Uh, something that the Bible tells us not to neglect, uh, not to take lightly. And so um, I just come before you with just great grace and uh, joy to be uh, able to be with you this morning. Uh, so if you will, as is our custom, let's stand, uh, turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I feel the Spirit moving on somebody right now. Amen. James chapter 4, beginning at verses, verse 1. We're going to get through verse 10 today. When you get there, say amen. If you're not there, say hold on. All right. All right, we there? We good? All right, let's, let's go ahead and get it. I'll start, and then you guys continue. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Keep going. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, um, we just come before you just thankful, thankful that your word is true, thankful that your word can be trusted. God, our pray today is that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also, uh, that we would recognize that you and your word have jurisdiction over our lives. Uh, and we are called to follow and submit ourselves to you in humble obedience. Uh, and that is not a chore for us. That's not burdensome for the believer to follow God and to be called to a life of holiness. But it's a joy and it's an honor and it's a privilege. And so, God, I want us to leave this place today knowing that though the call that you've given us to Christ-likeness is hard, you give us grace to do it. And you empower the believer through the faithful obedience of your followers and the power of Jesus Christ to walk in you with all humility. And so, God, we just pray that in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, this day, all God's people said amen. 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 You may be seated. 
Amen. If I can tag this text this morning, uh, I would tag it divided loyalty, getting to the heart of conflict. A divided loyalty, getting to the heart of conflict. Um, now, most times when I get up here, I usually, you know, I like to give an example just to kind of help us kind of get the context of the passage. And, you know, if you know me, uh, you know I'm a big movie guy, so I normally kind of use a lot of movie examples and stuff. But I'm not going to use a movie example today. I'm going to use a TV example, <laughs> if that's all right with y'all. And so, uh, a few years ago, um, there was a show on TV that me and my wife used to watch faithfully. It was a great show. Uh, it was called 24. Yeah, some 24 fans in here. It was a great show, right? Um, and, and at the end of season eight, when it went off, I remember, uh, I mean, we basically had a funeral at the end of the season because, uh, you know, my wife and a couple friends who were watching that final episode with us, uh, after we found out they weren't renewing the series anymore, we were looking around talking and saying, what are we going to do with our Mondays now during this time slot? Because there's, no so- there's no other show on TV that just hooks us the way 24 did. Now, this current season was kind of whack, so I'm not even going to tell you to go watch it. Um, but, 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 it was, it, it, but it was a phenomenal show. And so ever since, we've been kind of looking for a show that would just hook us and grab our attention. And I think I found it. I think I found it. There's a new show came on uh, starting in, in May called Gang Related. Right? And I already know I got approval that it's a good show because in the first gathering, Pastor Naira nodded his head really hard in approval. Right? And so, and, and so it's, a, it's a phenomenal show. The writing is, is spectacular. I mean, it just has you on the edge of your seat. You just you find yourself, you know, rooting for the wrong people. And, and I mean, it's just, it's great. There's so much inner turmoil that happens inside of me during these episodes, but, uh, but I, I won't give any spoilers in case you want to go watch it, but the show is uh, about a young man whose parents died. He was adopted by uh, a Latino drug lord uh, in L.A., uh, and so they, they basically make him family. He's part of the familia, uh, and uh, they train him. They love him. They send him off to the military to be trained in special forces. Uh, he gets back, and he gets a job in the ATF, and his job is to basically keep tabs on what the ATF is doing to keep them away from, you know, messing with the family's business and their drug operations. And so during the course of the show, it plays on the tension that he's experiencing between having a loyalty uh, to this drug cartel who has become his family, but also now having friends on the police force and, uh, and, and you know, just the tension that comes along with that, right? Um, but one of the things that I noticed as I watched this show, uh, like I mentioned earlier, was you find yourself kind of rooting for the bad guys in some way, you know, because they, they built his character as somebody that you, you feel sorry for, and, and they pull on your heartstrings, and it's like you don't want him to get caught or anything like that, and so you, you find yourselves rooting for the cartel and the drug dealers and all that stuff. And, and, and uh, one of the things that I also noticed was that it's, it's worse to be a mole or a spy than it is to be a criminal, it's worse. You know, at least, at least criminals are upfront about it, and they let you know that they're criminals. You know, I'm going to rob you. I have a gun, I'm going to rob you. And then they do, right? You, you can depend on them to be what they said they were going to be, right? But, but, but for a mole, you know, it, it's not the same because they, they spend time getting to know you. Um, and they're emotionally and 
relationally invested in you, and they prey on your weaknesses and learn your, vulnerability, your vulnerabilities, and you don't know it, and you trust them. And that's what makes the betrayal so deep, is because you believe them to be a friend, and you don't know that they're actually an enemy. And so what happens a lot of times in situations like this where there's moles or spies is, you know, the, especially on this show, the, the police force is frustrated because they can't accomplish their goal of progress and moving forward and arresting the bad guys. Um, and they get frustrated and they blame all of these external circumstances about timing and, 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 and he just slipped through our fingers. And, all, and so they spend a lot of time focusing their attention to fixing external problems for why they can't proceed and have success. All the while there is something or someone inside that's doing the most damage. And they're unaware of it because they spend all of their resources devoted to the outside, not knowing and, 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 and not realizing that the real problem lies within. And so that's where we find ourselves here in the text in James as he's talking to this group of believers is he's noticing how much conflict there is surrounded around the lives and in the relationships of this group of believers here in this text. And he's wondering why and how can it be. And so he starts off by saying, what quarrels and what fights are among you or what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he answers his own question and doesn't even give them a chance to respond. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Oh, Christian, why, why is there so much conflict surrounding your life? Why every time I hear your name, there's conflict and fights and disputes and arguments and disagreements. Why the people of God who are supposed to be known for peace and for love and for patience, is there so much turmoil? Is it not this, that you're only after what you want? Your passions are at war in your members. He says this verse again in verse 3. This the Greek word for where we get our word hedonism from, which is the, the pursuit of our self-gratification, the pursuit of our, 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 our own desires and our own satisfaction and our own pleasures and our own joy. It's the philosophy that makes the pursuit of our own happiness and our unending joy the focus of our lives. He says, that's, that's what's causing conflict among you. It's because you're driven by what you want. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, a lot of times when we find ourselves in conflicts, you know, the, the natural response and the natural reaction is to, to blame everybody else and to, to look at so-and-so and they caused me to do this or it's this person's fault or that person's fault. But it's funny because James touches a little bit of this. Before he dives in real heavy, he touches a little bit of this in chapter one at verse 14 and he says this. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Get the, get the imagery here. This is a vivid imagery. When you go fishing, right, you go out with a plan when you go fishing. 
You've got to have a plan, right? Because even though fish can't think like we do, fish aren't stupid. So you can't just throw a line out with nothing on it and expect them just to bite onto the hook. When you go fishing, you prepare to trick the fish into thinking that there's something on the end of the hook that's valuable or beneficial for them. And so we utilize smaller fish, worms, pieces of meat, and we cast the line out. And we cast the line out and the, the fish sees it, and they're like, hold on, you telling me I don't gotta go swimming, chasing food down? It's just dangling there for me? Like, it's just right there in the middle for me of the ocean? Like, I don't have to do nothing, I can just go eat? I'm taking advantage of that. And they go and bite down, and as full as you feel that little tug, you pull back to make sure it hooks in their mouth, and then you've got them, right? But on the end of that line, even though they thought there was something there beneficial for them, something that would benefit them, something that would uh, aid them, they were being bamboozled. And that's what Paul says here happens when we're dragged away and enticed by our own lust and, and desires. You set yourself up thinking that the very thing you're pursuing is going to benefit you and is going to prosper you and you're setting yourself up for destruction. Notice that he doesn't blame anybody here but you. He, he, God, didn't, God didn't put you in that position. Before that, he says, God can't tempt you because God is not tempted to sin. He doesn't even blame the enemy. He doesn't even blame Satan. He's, he says, the reason why conflict and turmoil is surrounding your life is because you believe that the, the sole pursuit of what you want will benefit you, and it doesn't. Then he says, in verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So that, that pursuit of your own self-satisfaction and your joy, when it's, when it's left unchecked and undealt with, it always produces sin. A, a drive to only get what you want, regardless of the cost, always results in sin. And then, and then when that sin is left unchecked and undealt with, he says, it grows up. And when it's become full grown, when you've given it time to just marinate and you haven't repented of it, it leads to death. And so he gives us a chronological picture of what happened when our lusts and our passions uh, uh, drive our lives, when we're driven by our lusts and what we want and what we desire solely outside of God's will. He says it leads to sin, and then sin unchecked leads to death all the time without fail. So then he goes back, chapter 4. Is it not these passions that are within you? Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, what's, what's, what's crazy about um, this this verse is, there's a sense in which, um, actually, you know, let me finish reading that, we'll come back to it. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Christ-like, unchrist-like motives and a lack of prayer are two of the enemies to discipleship and walking with Jesus. 
right? He says, he says, you want those things and you do not have it, so you hate. So what happens is when we're caught in conflict and turmoil and situations, especially when God blesses somebody else and we wanted that and God didn't bless us and we get angry and envious, especially of other believers because they have what we've been praying about, but God hasn't answered our prayers and uh, uh, apparently he answered theirs. And then we start harboring bitterness against people and unwillingness to forgive, right? That's what this murder here is talking about. It's not necessarily a physical murder. It's a reference to what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 5 where you, you have so much hate towards your brother and there's an unwillingness to forgive your brother that you, har- you harbor bitterness in your heart. And that's what tends to happen when we want something and God doesn't give it to us. And so we have to go a roundabout way to try to get it on our own. Or we see somebody else with what we have. And so now we're angry at God even more. And what does that result in? Prayerlessness. I'm not, I'm not going to God anymore. He ain't hearing me anyway. Apparently God's not good. Apparently God loves them more than he loves me. I've been praying about wanting a husband for a long time. It hurts being single. I'm lonely. I see everybody all booed up, going to the movies, going to get ice cream, taking long walks. I want somebody to hold. And then what happens? You stop waiting on God. See, taking too long. So I got to get mine another route and another way. And then once you've made your decision, that's when you pray. I know it's just me. I'm the only one that does that. But it's not to ask God for anything. It's to get God to cosign on what you already decided. And the only reason you're looking for some cosignage from God is so that when other people ask you about your stupid decision, you can say that you, the Lord told you it was okay. And everybody else know while they're watching you that you made a stupid decision. And you knew you made a stupid decision but you were driven by what you wanted and you didn't want to wait on God to give it to you. But I'm here to tell you right now, there's nothing this side of eternity that you can get that will satisfy you unless God gives it. Marriage is not the answer. It's not. I don't know if you know, but just because both of y'all are Christians doesn't mean you're going to have a good marriage. So you can get married all you want to, and then when when you experience hell in your marriage, because you didn't want to wait on the Lord, and then you want to blame God for why, I'll be honest, I'll be, listen, sex ain't that good. Y'all laughing, but I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. There's going to come a point in time in your marriage where one of y'all going to be pissed off and you're going to say no to sex. 
Sex is not the answer. It doesn't satisfy that well. You'll get tired of it. There's nothing that you can have. There's nothing that you want that if you get it apart from God will satisfy. I don't know if you know this, but he's rigged the world so that when you go to try to get things or do things outside of being connected to him, it's purposely going to leave you feeling empty. But you know, we want what we want, so we're going to go get it anyway. Verse 3, he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Even when we ask, we have ulterior motives in mind and ulterior objectives. Now, what's funny is the first three chapters before this, uh, James, James made use of a particular phrase where he said, he said, my brothers often or my brothers and sisters Right? He says it about eight times in the first three verses, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a familial term that he knew, regardless of what he was talking about, he could appeal to the people of God as brothers and sisters in Christ. And because they were brothers and sisters in Christ, he knew he could appeal to them and say, my brothers or my sisters, and you would listen and respond because what he was saying was of God and was biblical, And so he knew he could appeal to the relationship and the unity that they had with Christ to get them to walk in in, in order and obedience before God. But then he's he's so messed up with them right now. like He's so frustrated with them right now. He doesn't say my brothers at all. Look what he says, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. (laughs) He says, you you adulterous people. You you, you like to tiptoe out on God at night. You, you like to wait till he not looking and go get you some on the side and then sneak back into bed like ain't nothing happened. You, you, try to, you try to come in here on Sunday morning and worship all fraudulent in your heart. Like you ain't just been out running around, sleeping around, pulling your skirt up for any old body and you're going to come up in here and worship me like you've been with me, like you committed to me. He says, you adulterous people, there is something going on in your hearts, and the byproduct of it is only conflict. But when conflict takes place, what it's truly showing me is that you're divided. Some of you wants to love me, and some of you wants to live in the world. You can't make up your mind. He said, you're not wholly committed to me. You're not wholly following after me. See, in your heart, if you're really honest, there's... There's little things in the world that you still enjoy and you're still trying to hold on to. And you're experiencing the consequences of that. See, you can't have full intimacy with God when you got one foot in and one foot out. See, this, this ain't one of them breakups with the world. See, when you're in a relationship with the world, like, like James, uh, 1 John says in chapter 2, says that, you know, the, the things that are in the world, don't love the things that are in the world, the, the lust of the flesh, lust of the, lust of the eyes, and the, the pride of life. These things are not from the Father, they're from the world, they're passing away. When you love the world, when you got love for the world, there, there's always going to be something that you compromise in your relationship with Christ. Yeah. 
It's always going to be something you compromise. See, when, when Christ redeems you, when you make that decision that, God, I, I, I trust that you've forgiven me of my sins, I want to follow you, you, your breakup with the world can't be amicable. Y'all can't be friends no more. You can't just call her up when you get lonely just to talk. Y'all can't just go hang out places. When you break up with the world in order to be fully with God, it's got to be one of them nasty breakups. It's got to be one of them ugly breakups. I mean, one of the ugly breakups where you got to call the cops. And they got to issue restraining orders to force you to stay away. That's what kind of breakup it has to be when you leave the world. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, see conflict is just a byproduct of what's going on in your heart. And it's, it's a love of the world and the things of the world. And what happens is when we, when we love the pursuit of our own desires, when, when, when we're driven by what we want above everything else, we, we dig our heels into the sand and draw a line in the sand against God and say, I'm not going to budge. There, it, there's an unwillingness to follow Christ in some very practical areas. And I'm gonna give you, y'all know I'm a heavy practical guy. So stay with me and when we get to the end, I'm gonna give you some practical application. But in the moment when you decide to not listen to the Holy Spirit when he's whispering in your ear, you've drawn the line in the stand and dug your heels in and said, I'm gonna do what I wanna do right now. And you practically make yourself an enemy of God. Verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, there's a, there's a number of different translations for this verse. It's a very difficult verse to understand. It's written very weird in the Greek, and so I'm not going to give you all the different explanations, but the one that I feel is most appropriate based on verse 4 and verse 6 is the idea that, that men, man, is predisposed to chase after their own lusts. Man is bent towards not following God and being driven by what they want apart from God. That's why in verse 6 it says, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, verse 6. That's why in verse 6 it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So even though there are times in your life where you practically turn the switch off and you choose to do what you want to do, even though you know what God's word says and you follow after what you want, even though you know what God's word says, he says, even in those times, God gives more grace. That, that, that should be a, a source of encouragement for you that, that says, no matter where you are, no matter what kind of sin you think you've gotten yourself into, no matter what kind of hurt you're experiencing right now, God gives more grace. Yeah. But it also says, 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So there's, there's an idea where even though God gives more grace, he's not just going to give it to you. See, God doesn't give grace to proud people. God doesn't give grace to people who don't need him. That's, that's what proud means here. It means, it, it, it means uh, a rebelliousness that refuses to depend on God and be subject to him. And so God, God doesn't give grace to those type of people because they don't need it. See, when you're proud, you don't need the grace of God. Like you can do it on your own. But he says he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And then verses 7 through 9 or 7 through 10, he gives, James gives them some practical information. If you find yourself in a situation where you notice that your life is being driven by fleshly and selfish ambition, fleshly pursuits and selfish ambition, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. This is, this is the out clause to get you back from your worldliness. He says, number one, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, right? Now, what's special about this is it's an aorist active imperative, which means that the believer must combine God's work with an active participation. This is what it means. It means that in order for you to submit to God, you have to allow God to submit you to him. So it's not you doing the submitting, it's God submitting you to him, but you have to allow yourself to be submitted by God. So while God does the work of submitting you, there's an active participation that you play, there's a responsibility that you have to submit yourself as you're being humbly drawn to him, right? Submit yourself to God. Then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you implies that the believer must combine God's work again with an active participation of resisting the devil. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, right? The verse reflects an OT regulation that the priests, uh, that the priests had that are now, that's now applicable to all believers because we're now in the priesthood. So when it says, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's, it's, it's relating to the process that the priests had to go to when they had to cleanse themselves and ceremonially wash themselves before coming to the Lord. It, 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 it gives a picture of turning from sin and the removal from sin from one's life so that you can come before God in a proper way. But again, it's in the tense of God is doing these things to you, but it requires an active participation from you to be successful. So there's a sense in which you can't just sit back and have a, a lazy Christian life and just pray, God, make me do this. God's not just going to do it on his own without your participation. God, God's, God's waiting for you to respond in obedience so that he can do this incredible work in your life. See, there's a, there's a, there's a laziness we have as believers where we just kind of let life happen to us. We just kind of let sin happen to us in our lives because we don't want to man up and be active participants in drawing near to God and submitting ourselves to God and resisting the devil and cleansing our hearts and purifying our hands. 
He's, he says, there's, there's work that, even though I'm working in you, there's work and requirement that I require from you to make this happen. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There should be a grieving over sin. There's, there's, there should be grief over sin. I mean, you, you, you should notice when sin happens. Like, it, 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 it's an issue if you sin and you don't realize it. I mean, there's a problem when you make a habit of sin and it doesn't, like, bother you. I mean, like, like you just kind of shrug it off. Like, nothing just happened. Like, Jesus didn't redeem you for anything. And then we live life like the Holy Spirit doesn't live within us. There, 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 there's a sense here in which God wants us to both grieve over our sin and yet draw near to him to experience the joy of his forgiveness. But there has to be grief over sin. There has to be a humility that draws near in dependence upon God, right? Stay with me. We're almost there. Verse 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, to God, and he will exalt you. In the midst of all these commands, submit, draw near, resist, cleanse, humble. Humble here is the only one where there's not an active participation. Humble yourselves and you'll be exalted. This is what God does to you when you submit in humility before him. So as you're an active participant in submitting yourselves to God, God makes you humble and then exalts you. See, the issue in conflict, though, is we don't like to wait for the exaltation. We, we need to be exalted now. Like, we, we need to be right in people's eyes now. We need to be justified now. Humble yourselves and you'll be exalted. I got a few minutes, so here we go. Five, five key points. Right, so we have fighting and quarreling happening. Why are they happening? There's something going on inside of you. There's something in your hearts that, 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 that only drives you to want what you want, right? Which causes conflict. And then when that conflict uh, is, is unrepented of and undealt with, it, it, it mirrors a friendliness with the world, right? That's why earlier in, in chapter three, he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Where conflict exists, sin is present. And there's a friendliness with the world or an unwillingness to submit wholly to God that exists, that practically makes us enemies with God. And what he's saying is, you need to submit. You need to repent. You need to grieve over your sin. You need to be drawn to the Lord, right? Practically, what does that mean for us in conflict? What, how do we honor the Lord in conflict? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but life is filled with conflict, right? Like the, and conflict isn't just for the world. Conflict is for you Jesus lovers too. You're, you're, either going through con, you're either in conflict now, you've gone through conflict, or you're about to go into more conflict. Conflict is a natural part of our lives. The issue is not conflict. The issue is how you respond in the midst of it, right? 
So here we go. Five, five keys to honoring God in your conflict. Number one, being right is not as important as being holy. Being right is not as important as being holy. What do I mean by that? Sometimes we can get so caught up in wanting to be right and wanting to make other people see and experience our rightness that we will throw to the side holiness and love and meekness and kindness and gentleness and patience because our rightness uh, supersedes all of that. Oh, maybe I'm the only one. That's just me. Okay. I, just, I thought maybe everybody else could benefit from that too. I didn't know it was just me. I mean, y- y'all never experienced that? You don't, you, you ha- you've never like wanted, you've never been right and then argued your righteousness when somebody else disagreed with you and then you responded in an ungodly manner just to get them to see that you were right so you could be satisfied in your spirit that you were right. And not only that you were right, because it wasn't enough for you to know that you were right, you had to let them know that you were right. That's just me. Maybe it's just me. I'm the only one that struggles with that. You know, I, I, I struggle with being right. I do. My wife can attest to it. You know? I, like, I struggle so much that even sometimes I think my opinion is right. I know I'm the only one. Like my opinion, like I think so highly of myself that my opinion is right. That was a struggle early in our marriage. I remember one time, Lord jammed me up. We were coming back from the movies. We saw the movie. You know how you do after a movie, talk it over with your friends, uh, critique yourself a little bit, critique the movie. And so I started to share my opinion with her about what I thought about the movie. And I'm like, okay, cool. So she started to share her opinion of what she thought about the movie. And I got really upset because I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. I just told you my opinion of the movie. What are you talking about? And the Lord started jamming me up like, bruh, it's an opinion. And not only is your opinion not always right, um, you're dead wrong a lot of the times, even though you're too prideful to admit it, but it's okay to have differences. It's okay to disagree peaceably, right? My wife hates me now. Like, she hates, she hates me now because now I'll say, I'll say, you know, babe, it's okay if we disagree. And she wants to kind of talk it out so we can be in agreement. Sometimes you can't be in agreement, but it's, it's okay to disagree peaceably in a way that honors the Lord. The goal is not always to agree. The goal is to communicate with one another and talk it out. But if you disagree, do it peacefully. Being right is not as important as being holy. Number two, identify your trigger responses, i.e., how you typically respond in conflict. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The way you probably respond to conflict is the way that you grew up responding to conflict. So here's what I mean by that. See, in my family, when I, when I was growing up, like, we, we yell, even now sometimes, yell at each other, cuss at each other, sometimes we wrestle, might get into a fist fight, but then after it's over, half hour later, we good. You got it out your system, right? Like it, it, was, it wasn't nothing. Like, and so, so that's how we dealt with conflict. We would argue each other down, we would yell, scream, sometimes it would lead to a physical altercation, 
right? Not too often, but every once in a while you had to go there, right? And so, and, and, but I, but that's, and because that's kind of how I dealt with conflict as I got older, I thought, well, man, that's, it's okay to just do that. It's okay to just wait and not deal with conflict until you get to the point where you got to blow up on somebody and then you're good. And after that, you don't really got to talk about it or nothing or deal with what the conflict was. You just blow up on them, move on, right? When I became a Christian, what I started to do was like, okay, I know I can't blow up on people now. So what I'm going to do is I'm just not going to say nothing, right? And so I've made the bad habit. At, now, was that a good idea? Yes. It was a good idea to keep your mouth shut when you're angry, right? However, what happened was instead of communicating how I was feeling, I would just be angry for long periods of time. I just wouldn't talk at all. And I would make the excuse, well, I don't want to say anything offensive, so I'm just not going to talk at all. But you know what happens when you don't talk? You get a chance to think. You get a chance to replay that situation over and over and over again in your mind. And not talking only makes you more angry. And my, my, my wife grew up in a, a different house, different cultural background, even though we're both African-American, right? How they deal with conflict is different. So as we got married and had to learn how to work through conflict, we butted heads a lot because she thought the way she dealt with conflict was right. I thought the way I dealt with conflict was right because that's how we grew up. So I want to challenge you. Look at those key things that look at how, identify how you deal with conflict that's carried over from how you grew up. And then I want you to do something. Submit it to the Bible. Because what I had to do was I had to take those areas that I learned growing up of how to deal with conflict. And I had to put them under the authority of the scripture and says, is this biblical? Is this a godly way to deal with conflict? And if it's not, I got to toss it out. I have to have my mind changed about what godly conflict looks like. Right. Number three, your responsibility to engage in conflict in a, man, in, in, a, in a godly manner is not dictated by whether or not the other person is behaving in a godly manner. Your responsibility to engage in conflict in a godly manner is not dictated by whether or not the other person is behaving in a godly manner. Regardless of what anybody else is doing, you are accountable to God for you and your response. So, husband, it doesn't matter whether or not your wife is submitting to you or is following your lead. Do you deal with conflict? Yes, but, 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 her disobedience to God does not justify your disobedience to God. You can't say, well, Lord, I would, I would be a better husband if she would do her part. He's not asking you that. He's, he's, he said, I've, I've called you to live peaceably and gently with her. Are you doing that? I've told you to stop cussing her out. Have you done that? I've told you to stop living like you single and don't got no responsibilities. Have you done that? I've told you to wash her with the water of the word, but you seem to only use the word of God when you're trying to make yourself seem right to beat her down. Are you doing that? Wives, are you nagging your husband? I've told you to be patient with him. Give him opportunity to fail. 
to let him love you and let him lead you. Are you doing that? God has called all of us to walk as disciples of Jesus Christ first. Second is your relationship with husband, wife, friend, mother, daughter, sister, brother, cousin, all that other stuff. You're a disciple of Jesus. You're accountable for your response and your reaction. Listen to me. Even if you're a victim and somebody has offended you or violated you in, in any type of way, God still requires you to respond in a godly manner. Because you might say, well, Pastor Kurt, I didn't even do nothing and they did this. Okay, God is just and God will deal with them. Yes. And, 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 and the church will deal with them. And the pastors will deal with them. Will you wait on God to deal with them? Come on, God. Come on, when will you stop fighting for yourself and let God do what he does? Yeah. See, we, we don't like waiting on God to fight our battles for us. He takes too long. Number four, communicate openly and clearly about how you feel. Yes. I.e., don't assume people should know how you are feeling. One of the issues with guys in particular is we don't clearly communicate how we feel. One, because sometimes it makes us feel weak, right? It makes us feel too vulnerable. We feel like we, got, we should just be able to just kind of hold it in and deal with it, Right? But, but there's, there's a need for us to not assume that people should know how we're feeling when they offend us. Sometimes they don't even know that they've offended us. But we, we hold it in, and we harbor it in, and we get bitter, and we hold it against them. Sometimes we smile in their face and then talk about them behind their back. And we're not, we don't communicate clearly about what it is that's going on in our hearts and have open dialogue and conversation to work conflict out. And then when we do, don't do it in a way where you're short-tempered or, 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 when, or, or, or when you're like, you, you know, you're, you're passive aggressive in your talk or when you're unnecessarily just have an attitude, right? Communicate clearly, but do it in a God-honoring way. Go talk to people. Can't deal. Listen, you not talking to somebody is not dealing with conflict. You can't deal with conflict you have with somebody else by not talking to them. Doesn't happen. Doesn't go away. Time does not make conflict goes away. Go away. Time, time gives more opportunity for you to assume things, it gives more opportunity for anger, gives more opportunity for bitterness, gives more opportunity for misunderstandings, gives more opportunity for you to hate them, gives more opportunity for dissension. Go talk to people that you have issues with. Yes. And don't try to justify that whole speaking in truth and love for why you got an attitude when you go talk to them. I'm being... I'm, I'm, Maybe I'm the only one that sees it when we say we got to go talk to people in truth and love and we use that to justify why we got an attitude just to go talk to them and why we're harsh and unloving and unkind and we don't give them grace and we don't give them the benefit of the doubt and we don't think good of them or well of them and we just assume they had evil intentions with us. Maybe I'm the only one that tries to over-spiritualize how we deal with conflict in the church. 
All right, I'm almost done. Last one. Repent, forgive, move on. Repent, forgive, move on. Friday, Friday I had some things to do, right? Had some things to do on Friday. Sorry, baby, I'm just going to use this as an example. I know I didn't tell, it, tell you ahead of time. I, already, I seen you at the corner of my eye. Oh, God. <laughs> Friday evening, Friday evening, I had some things to do, right? Wife had to go grocery shopping. We came back from vacation a week before, you know, was waiting to get paid, didn't have much food in the house, had to go grocery shopping. She's like, babe, it's going to be a long trip. I'm going to be like three hours. I'm like, all right, cool, you know? I'm like, okay, it gives me, gets back at a good time. Still got plenty of time to do what I need to get done, right? So, you know, next thing I look up at the clock, and it's almost five hours gone by. Right? And, she, and she gets home, and I'm irritated and irked in my spirit because what, what I should have had plenty of time to do now, I have to rush and do it. Right? And, and I didn't say anything in the moment because I knew if I would have said something, I would have said it with an attitude, even though I might not want to say it with an attitude. I know because I'm angry, I'm going to say it with an attitude. Right? So I didn't say anything. I waited until I left the house because I had to run an errand and I texted her. I said, babe, just want to be honest. I thought that was a little selfish. Kind of puts me behind the eight ball right? And so she texts back. Everything I was feeling, she texts back, and she repented of. And she said, I did this, and this, and this, and I'm sorry. I got to get better. Like, I, like, I understand that that makes it a difficult situation, blah, blah, blah. The moment I read that, the Holy Spirit said, you have to forgive her now. Don't go home with the attitude. Why? Because she repented. Yeah. What was I looking for when I told her she had offended me? Repentance. She repented, I'm not going to go home now with, an, with a heavy hand and hold it over her just to squeeze it out of her now and make her feel how much she inconvenienced me. See, we don't, we don't allow people to really repent to us. We don't really want repentance. We want more than repentance. We, 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 wanna, we want repentance plus how they made us feel. And we want to hold it over their heads. And the minute I read that text and repentance was evident there, the Holy Spirit said, if you go home and you got an attitude, you're in sin. And if you're a lover of Jesus, if, we, if you really say that you want to be Christ-like, when the Holy Spirit whispers in your ear, you better be obedient. Because sooner or later, the more you're disobedient, the more you drown him out, the more you quench his voice in your ear, you're going to wake up one day and he's no longer going to be talking. And that's a sad day. Right? Forgive, repent, move on. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for your word that is a light unto our path and a a lamp unto our feet, that it guides us, that it directs us, um, that it gives us practical instruction for day-to-day living. Um, You've called us to walk in Christ-likeness. You've called us to have the same mind that he had. Um, He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself as a servant uh, and God, I pray that that would be something that would be indicative of our walks with you. That would be, we would be marked with daily is, the, we would have marks of a servant. Um, that we wouldn't be driven by our passions and our desires and what we want. It's easy to get caught up in what we want. 
Even the little decisions are based on what we want. And God, I pray that in those moments, we would submit our desires and our passions to you. Because having them is not bad. You've given us passions. You've given us desires. You've given us things that are good. But God, a, a, a prayerlessness and, a, and a, a self-dependency perverts those things, God. And God, I pray that we would humbly submit everything, every good thing that you've given us to you, your timing, your will, your ways, and that we would wait on you. Uh, and that we would honor you with our behavior, with our mouths, our lives, and our lips, and that we would do the hard work of even those little moments, those little moments of making the hard decision to follow you, even when we don't want to. But you give more grace, and you empower us through the Holy Spirit. And so, God, I just pray for us as a people that our lives will be marked by the diligence of humbly submitting our lives to you. And we just pray that in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.